in the last election, the story that Netanyahu was working to try and pull these two parties together to run together so that they had enough votes to get into the Knesset, the story was an outrage. People were like, how can you legitimize these racists and these, you know, like they can't sit in the Knesset and just one cycle later, he's he's made them, you know, a major partner in his coalition. So it's 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 been a very quick change from the political extreme to the mainstream very quickly. Hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Uh, it's good to be back. I know it's been a little while um, since we posted an episode here on the podcast. I uh, hope everyone's been doing all right. Uh, I've been knee deep in a research project. I don't know how productive I've been using my time over the winter break here, the long break we have um, at the school I'm at here in Japan. Um, but regardless, I hope everyone's had a nice winter and is enjoying uh, the emergent spring. Transitioning from such uh, lofty hopes of a, a new spring and new flowers, it, it really is my favorite time of year when things start to turn. Uh, the winter here in Akita is quite cold and snowy, so um, it is always nice. But in spite of the nice surroundings and the nicer temperatures, um, we still are in a world of multiple crises, breakdowns, environmental, human, what have you. And today we are going to be turning our attention to such a crisis and breakdown and, and maybe not all pessimistic um, as our discussion will detail, maybe some glints of for optimism um, among this. But suffice to say, uh, a troubling set of circumstances that have emerged in Israel. I'm very fortunate to have a good old friend and colleague, Mike Hilkowitz, um, on the ground. He's been living in Israel for, I think, over 10 years now, um, and uh, is really able to give us some deeper insights and, and background into what is going on. And I think it's a conversation that I certainly learned quite a bit from, even though I've been staying up to date and, and reading articles about the protests last week. And a lot of the concerns, um, suffice to say, uh, surrounding the policies and politics of the latest iteration of a Netanyahu government um, in Israel. So I think there's quite a bit you'll be able to get out of it. And to keep this short here, I just want to give a little heads up in terms of uh, how this is organized. Um, we kind of uh, proceeded in, in the classic uh, upside down triangle kind of format. We start with the very kind of specific details. Um, Mike talks a little bit about some of his experiences um, on the ground there in Israel, um, some of the exact immediate causes precipitating um, the current unrest and and disputes within Israeli society from the politics all the way down to the thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of citizens who have taken to the streets, um, you know, opposing or in some cases supporting the Netanyahu regime. And after that, we take kind of one step down the pyramid and, and broaden out a little bit and think about some of the conditions and lingering issues that have really emerged in Israeli society over the past decade or so that have uh, helped given shape to uh, and form the kind of dividing lines that are at play here in the disputes and upheaval that is kind of overtaken the country in the last week or so. And after that, uh, we take, you know, another step back, uh, in terms of broadening out the perspective and horizons and delve into the lingering and, and, you know, and from my perspective, sadly kind of stagnant um, peace process and the history of the Israeli occupation of the uh, West Bank and um, until um, some time ago, Gaza Strip, uh, and how the politics of the occupation, though they are not um, front and center, and, and, and as we discussed in the episode, a lot of the central issues um, in the current disputes within Israel have um, very little immediately to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that has um, shaped politics within Israel and the West Bank and Gaza for decades and, and wider in the Middle East. And 
for quite a long time until seems um, over the last decade or so was it was a major issue in world politics. And you know, one thing we talk about is how that's kind of fallen off um, the radar, uh, perhaps driven off by other major events, but uh, certainly is nowhere near as prominent as it was during the 1990s when I was coming of age. This said, um, you know, the the conversation uh, ended up being um, pretty lengthy. Um, we we have a lot to talk about, and as you can see with the kind of rundown, we uh, cover a huge amount of ground uh, historically and in terms of the areas we look into. Um, so I thought it would be best to kind of divide it, and so this episode here covers the first two sections. You know, kind of the immediate. What are the issues like the here and now issues really driving? at the core of this set of disputes and, and upheaval, um, and also some of the more you know middle-term, immediate kind of background that helped lay the groundwork for the unrest and um, intense disputes within Israeli society that we're seeing now. Um, and I will be releasing probably next week um, the second part of our conversation, uh, which put, tries to put this in the context and look at how it interacts with the um, wider issue of the still unresolved Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the status of the West Bank. Now, some issues related to um, the Palestinian issue, and, and particularly Arab-Israelis, um, citizens of Israel, come up in this episode, but um, the second segment that will be released next week really takes the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, a bit more head-on. Suffice to say, um, though of course I am biased, it's a great conversation, and one thing I really um, enjoy about it is uh, I think it strikes a perfect kind of line. Um, Mike and myself, uh, you know, share a lot of values, share a lot of, you know, perspectives. But at the same time, you know, we, we certainly don't see eye to eye on everything. And I think there's just enough tension there to drive conversation along. I don't know if tension's the right word, but kind of disagreement, friction, right? To, to create hopefully some light, to create some energy to the conversation. Uh, but by no means is it at a level where we're just going to start screaming at each other or get all kind of upset and petty and so forth, right? And so I think that's always, for me, an ideal kind of tenor for these conversations. Okay, so before we get to the episode, let me just introduce um, Mike Hilkowitz a little bit more formally. Mike is a graduate from Temple University studying history and secondary education, uh, he has lived in Israel since 2012 and formerly served as chief content officer for the Israel Innovation Fund uh, that worked to promote Israeli culture, art, and humanities abroad. Currently, he has nearly completed his master's degree in security and diplomacy studies at Tel Aviv University, and he is a frequent guest columnist and analyst for various Israeli publications, including the Times of Israel. Um, Mike really knows his stuff. Um, he is just, you know, really one of the sharpest observers and thoughtful observers of Israeli politics and society that I know. Um, it's great to connect here again with him on the podcast. He was actually on um, the show, I think a little over a year ago. Uh, and, you know, in some ways we started having these conversations in a dingy apartment in Philadelphia around 2004 and 2005. Um, Maybe, maybe at those times they were more like proper arguments. Um, and we've gotten older and, um, we still have different views and, and debate a bit, but, uh, we don't yell at each other as much, maybe, or, or at all, at least on this show. So, um, it's really nice to kind of, um, pick up conversations that we started well over a decade ago here, um, hooking up on the Interesting Times podcast. Um, as always, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Um, if you like the show, please share it with your friends or family. Uh, you know, like, review, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I guess we're just, who knows, with AI, we're just feeding data. So just feed some, feed some pro interesting times data into this horrible, wretched machine that, uh, appears ever closer to gobbling us all up. Um, anyways, I'm just being silly. Thanks so much for listening to the show, but seriously, rate, review, um, pass the show on to anyone you think that's interested and, um, please leave a comment. Um, you know, there's a comment section, um, on our Substack. That's the interesting times.substack.com. Uh, leave a comment. would love to hear from you. All right. Thanks so much for everyone for listening. So again, this is part one, um, of our conversation and part two should be up next week.
All right, Mike Hilkowitz, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times. Um, now, officially been hired for the sum total of zero dollars as our Israeli um, bureau officer, manning all Interesting Times business and operations in Israel. So uh, good to have you on board. I'll take whatever paycheck I can get. <laughs> well, you know, it would be a zero point zero zero dollar. Hey, check. Uh, excellent. excellent. But, uh, cool. As long as I get the check, you know, the piece of paper, <laughs> I want to put it up on the wall. <laughs> right. Your, your professionalization, I guess. Okay. Well, um, all jokes aside, suffice to say, for people who are even paying casual attention to the news, Israel has been under quite a bit of tumult that has really boiled to a head the last few days, mass protests and a mass strike and so forth. So, you know, you are on the ground, you have participated in some actions. So first, why don't you tell us where you are in Israel and some of the things that you've kind of seen going on over the last few days? Yeah, so uh, I'm based in Rishon Litzion, Israel, which is a city about uh, 20 kilometers south of Tel Aviv. And uh for all intents and purposes, it's a it's a really normal kind of city, not prone to big protests, not overtly radically political in general. You know, mm. people going about their lives, raising their kids, a, a pretty middle of the road kind of place. And uh, I was sitting in my apartment on Monday night. Uh, and out the window, out through the window, I heard uh, horns and zuzu villas and uh, drums. And being the person I am, you know, I jumped up and decided to go out and see what was going on. Right. Uh, and and this was uh, Sunday night. Sunday night in a climax to, to a lot of what has been going on and building for the last 12 weeks, longer than that in some ways. Uh, but these street protests that have come to a head now uh, have been going on for 12 weeks. Mm. Um, it's only kind of gaining this international attention in the last few days, but um, there have been shutdowns uh, throughout Israeli society over the last 12 weeks, uh, really surprisingly kind of directed and um, supported by the high-tech workers in Israel. Okay. So interesting. I haven't really... So well, just to um, circle back, when you say 12 weeks, now is that when the most recent iteration of uh, a Netanyahu government exactly. took place? Okay. Yeah. So... so yeah, so Benjamin Netanyahu's latest uh, government took power, uh, took back power, however you want to put it, uh, 12 weeks ago. And pride of Sheldon High School, Philadelphia. Pride, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, maybe not the Pride. I don't know if they got this picture hanging well, up there. Well, he went to yeah. school in Philly, so we had to, we had to, we had to give Sheldon a name drop. Yeah, um, yeah. But he also, I mean, it's it, it. This speaks to one of his qualities that's had him last so long as this, you know, very accessible English, you know, he can speak to the American audiences. Right. Um, but even this is sort of running short at the moment. So 12 weeks ago, he took over and um, the first order of business uh, for his new government was passing a series of laws restricting the powers in various ways of the Israeli Supreme Court. And as much as, you know, the Israeli elected government and government policy comes under scrutiny internationally on a regular basis, right? Some warranted, some not, whatever. The, the single constant pretty much throughout Israeli history is that the Supreme Court stood as this sort of beacon of liberal democratic values, um, restricting the Israeli government, ruling in favor of Palestinians, ruling in favor of this or that, against the wishes of the government on a regular basis. And it was always seen that Israel's judiciary was independent and 
more or less fair, striving to be fair. You know what I mean? Uh, These things are all relative, but relatively speaking. Okay. Yes. And and so it seems that it it also has, it has this real importance in that you said it has been like an actual check on governments and and rejected them or, or ruled on. There's been, you know, very... Suffice to say, fraught cases involving um, Palestinian Israelis or Palestinians in the West Bank, um, and exactly. at times they have made controversial decisions. Um, other times, maybe not, uh, and, and kind of towed the line. But exactly, they they strive for it. They don't necessarily always, you know, make what you or I would think is the right decision. But mm. decisions are generally based on a respect for law and trying to, you know, find what the correct answer is under the law. Okay, so just on top of that, it seems also from what you're saying that um, the Supreme Court in Israel also has, in in some ways akin, maybe in a much different context to, um, you know, the United States, it it has a symbolic kind of value, right? That it really symbolizes something. That seems to me something that must be going on with like the significant outpouring. Is that a fair characterization? It absolutely is. Um, You know, unlike the United States where you have an independent executive and legislative branch, right? In Israel, because of the parliamentary system, right? The government is whatever coalition has the majority of the legislature, right? right? So well, whoever has the majority in the Knesset, that's the the government. And so the two are kind of the same. For all intents and purposes, there are only two branches of independent government in Israel, which is the judiciary and the executive legislative. And so the only stop on any government action legally is the courts, right? That's that's where you're left. So there's without that, there's really no stop on the government's power to enact whatever law it would like to enact. Right. So correct me if I'm wrong. There have been Palestinian Israeli justices on this court, or no? Uh, yeah. There's, there's been Muslim, there's been Arab. Um, I think currently there's a, a Arab-Israeli of Palestinian descent on the Supreme Court. There's been Druze Arab members of the Supreme Court. So the, the way that the Supreme Court is, is picked in Israel is one of the, the big issues at, at play here. Maybe a good place to start um, before you, you in, I want you to add what you were going to say. And on top of this is like, wh- what is the law that is like, you know, ostensibly at the center of all this? Obviously, right. as we're going to talk about there's more at the center. But what specifically was this law that now Netanyahu has temporarily at least pulled off the docket? And it's not even so clear. Um, right. Yeah. What and is the law that he's trying to pass? So there's been a package of laws that have been proposed. Uh, and are working their way through the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, um, to weaken the court in various ways. The first and the one that has become kind of the red line for the opposition and for the protesters uh, is a law on how the committee that chooses court uh, justices and judges is populated. Okay, who is on this committee? Previously, or currently, let's say, uh, the Judicial Selection Committee is made up of four representatives from the government, three judges, and two representatives from the Israeli Bar Association. Three support Supreme Court justices, when I say three uh Judges. And when you say the government, that would be basically the, the prime minister and the, the cabinet coalition. Kind of appointment. Yeah, the, 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 the representatives of the ruling coalition. And just those would change. So like when there's a change of government, whoever those are, it's, you know, those Correct. people would. But the other Correct. people, 
what's the um, now I like I like digging into this. This is good to talk yeah. to you. Now what like the other the other the bar association reps and the people from the judiciary, what's the mechanism for changing them? They choose themselves. Like so they can the, the they bar association Yeah, they change so they change at the you know rotation of the president of the Supreme Court or the you know however the the bar association chooses to choose its representatives in any given session i guess okay, um, so so but so going the back important, to what you're saying so yeah the, so yeah, the, the important, important thing. thing about this is right there's nine people on the selection committee four from the government three justices and two lawyers okay every time they need to choose a judge they need a seven vote majority to, to choose someone. So the government clearly has veto power over justices, right? With their four votes. Mm. The justices also have veto power with their three votes, right? So both the, the courts and the government have veto power over candidates for the courts, for the judges. So they have to come to compromises, right? They have to choose people. And I, I mean, personally, I think this is a great idea. They're forced to come to some kind of compromise. What the government proposed, Justice Minister uh, Yair Levine, um, who's kind of heading up, one of the guys heading up these judicial reform packages, proposed changing the uh, membership and the way judges are selected so that there are five representatives of the coalition uh-huh. and uh, four, mem- four representatives of the opposition, not of the Supreme Court, um, of the political opposition. Okay. So this would take this would take the the court justices out of the process of choosing future justices and it would leave it as like totally political but it would also just need a, a majority to choose justices which would give the coalition uh, an automatic veto and an automatic choice over whatever justices would come in in the future so just they would have five out of nine. Yeah, they would have five out of nine automatically every time. So they would. So it also gets rid of the seven vote rule then. Exactly, it would be a simple majority at, at that point. Okay, so those are those are the and it's an interesting, you know, it, 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 I guess some sly attempt to say, but no, we're going to give four seats to the opposition. To the opposition, right? right? They're forty percent. Right. We're sixty percent. That makes right. sense, you know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, right, and this is all dressed up in the as you say in this veneer of we're trying to improve democracy we're trying to balance the the powers that have got out of whack because and look there's there's a fair argument to be had you know philosophically about in a democracy should judges have the power to have a say in appointing their successors, right? Is that really the role of an uh, unelected official, right? right? Or shouldn't the representatives of the people be more empowered in this? So there's definitely, you know, philosophically discussions to be had about what the right balance is and, you know, but what's clear is uh, the proposals and the laws that have been enacted by this government so far uh, have been about taking power and not about finding an appropriate balance, which is why in recent polling, some 65, 70% of Israelis say they think there needs to be reforms in the judicial system but only 17% agree with these reforms, right? So there's there's a, a wide, wide gap there. Right. Significant. 
Sure. So let, well, let me ask you one more technical question that, uh, you know, what is, is it the same as the U.S. where they have lifetime appointments or is there a term limit? Like what's that for Supreme Court justice leaving the bench or, you know, like in the U.S. you die or resign or get him? Yeah. So in Israel, uh, Supreme Court justices are, are um, required to retire at 70 years old. Okay. Um, so there's three as it stands right now, including Supreme Court President uh, Esther Hayut, um, who are set to retire. Okay, so this is another important piece of the contract. Right, so so whoever is in government, if these reforms go through, whoever is in the ruling coalition at the time will have almost unlimited power to appoint the next president of the Israeli Supreme Court who sets, you know, who is a very... Uh, powerful administrator of, you know, what things come before the court and how the docket is ran. Right. Wow. So so that is, I guess, you know, kind of the crux of, of this matter. And I, I, th- I already know quite a bit more about it than I did 20 minutes ago. So um, thanks for the, the rundown. But um, I, I think so, you know, there's always like the, you know, this idea of like a proximate cause and kind of underlying causes. So I think, you know, as you mentioned, like in, in the protests that have broken out and um, there was a mass strike. Uh, now, the mass strike, I guess, has, has somewhat ceased, or is, or is that are they still uh, it, trying it's, to push forward? It's that? it's settled for. It's been. I mean, you know, I was up late last night waiting for updates, waiting for updates. It's, there's 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 a certain sort of um, hour to hour development on this, but right now the 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 nationwide general strike has been called off, and they're just sort of waiting to see what happens. Sunday night, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's defense minister, uh, Yoav Golant, uh, publicly called for a break or a, a suspension of the reforms to, to stop sort of these divisions that have really uh, reached the, the military level and have become a, a security risk. Uh, for the country. And uh, so he came out publicly and asked uh, for a a pause in the reforms uh, for dialogue to try and come to some kind of compromise. And uh, Netanyahu fired him. Uh, Sort of. Sort of. Uh, Because he still hasn't done the official paperwork to fire him. So he's not fired. Bibi has just said he's fired. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting little thing. Um, but this is really sort of what took the, the, the weekly and biweekly, uh, protests that had been going on for the last 12 weeks, uh, where the numbers had gotten up to, you know, three, 400,000, uh, people coming out weekly to these, these rallies, something like 19% of the Israeli population has been to at least one protest, uh, which is really, I mean, think like what, like 60 million Americans. If you, if you want to compare the number, like it's a really unheard of kind of historic movement here. Right. Well, the, I mean, the only um, comparison I could think of that is uh, somewhat close in terms of scale. Of the population would be the, uh, I study Korea, the candlelight movements. Uh, candlelight movement in Korea, where you did have millions of people, um, right? Out in the so yeah, and- it's it's really his- like this is a this is not your general you know uh, kind of sectarian protests. This is really encompassing significant different sectors of the society uh, geographically. So it's 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 been a real mass protest. But then um, Netanyahu fired his defense minister for speaking out against the reforms. Uh, That was about 10 o'clock on Sunday night, about 10 o'clock on Sunday night, and spontaneously about 600,000 people came out onto the street. Uh, They were the, the Ayalon Highway, which is the main north to south artery through the center of Israel, was shut down for five or six hours in both directions by protesters. 
uh, in various different locations. And so, and, and by Monday morning, um, the Histadrut uh, Labor Union, which is the national umbrella labor union, said that it was joining in the strike, which was followed by banks. And, you know, and that was really the, the, the Histadrut getting involved was really sort of the, the domino that fell that really pushed this general strike into action. Well, this is a good good point to kind of segue into like, you know, th- that I, I think for the reasons you stated, this is, you know, in and of itself quite a significant issue and, and could have, you know, fairly dramatic implications in terms of the current coalition being able to just kind of um, have carte blanche, um, you know, over all branch, you know, both branches of the political system, as you kind of outlined. Um, but I think ob- there's clearly these are also precipitated by a lot of kind of long running underlying kind of divisions within Israeli society and, and kind of heightening of political tensions, as are witness in many places in the world, obviously the U.S. included, a kind of profound schisms uh, across certain ideological and political lines. And one of them that I think is tied up with this is um, something that uh, came up just you know a little bit earlier in the conversation, and that is the status of Arab-Israeli Note, you know, took note the other day where I think it was the finance minister. I don't remember his name. That's all. Um, you know, yeah, basically just said Palestinians don't exist, and you know, there's no, there's no Palestinian issue because there are no Palestinians, and that, and that is chilling language. And and I, to be fair, I don't, I don't want to raise your ire. I know many, you know, Palestinian groups have used similar language towards Israel. So, yeah, um, extremist, but I, I don't, extremist you know, groups. Right. And, and, and in some ways, you know, that has been one way Israel, at least in its outfacing public, you know, outward facing efforts have, have sought to differentiate. But I mean, here, so, I, you know, with me and, and, and clearly there's been, you know, within right factions in Israel for some time, the at least alluding to or hinting at Arab Israelis themselves, um, Israeli citizens being kind of a fifth column right. and dangerous have, have, have been around, but it really seems in recent years that people who are, you know, openly bigoted and openly instilling fear about Israeli citizens who happen to be Arab, right? Um, uh, have have are now in power. I mean, they're they're you know, which is something we've seen again in elsewhere, the United States notably, where people who were on the fringe are are now, um, very much. Yeah, I mean, we can look the, at Poland, the, Hungary, you know, the uh, Turkey. This this rightward. Well, slide. I mean, you could. You could look at, um, you know, I don't want to uh, upset any of my Indian listeners. Um, shout out whoever you are, um, but you know, if they like Modi, but I mean, Modi, yeah. was part of it was was you know part and parcel to a, a massacre. Yeah, <laughs> and he's the you know reigning prime minister. So um, yeah, uh, so we do see this, and this is certainly seems to be going on in Israel. And why I bring that up is that if they then want to take it upon themselves to start passing. Genuinely, um, and I know it's a charged word, but it, it's a, it's a, I think you know the lack of a, a different word like apartheid-like laws yeah. Yeah, yeah. within Israel. Um, there's that, and, nothing and that to would stop be a game changer, right? And that would be a game changer, right? Um, right. And I say apartheid-like because yeah. I'm mean, I'm just saying it's similar in terms of official laws dividing right. society. I'm not saying it's a comparison directly with South Africa. And you're also making the correct, you know. Uh, differentiation of sort of within Israel and the, you know, the military policy in the West Bank, which are two, you know, different things. Uh, Right. So, yeah, I mean, that seems like really a dangerous stew, Um, you know, that you're going, you have these people empowered um, and you have people making comments such as like Palestinians don't exist in, in the cabinet and looking to basically remove any encumbrances to them kind of developing their kind of or instituting their vision um of, of a and it's getting further than that um so okay. so yeah. in in kind it's of, it's almost never worse than i imagine so lay, lay it on me h yeah it's it's actually you know <laughs> i was watching uh someone talk about um john stewart from one of the mark twain things and they said he suffers from a terminal case of anxiety um and I think uh, that's how people in, in Israel are living right now, because it is really getting so close to the precipice of, you know, a, um, a real change here. And, you know, for all of Israel's 
policy mistakes and missed opportunities and, you know, terrible actions that have happened. Uh, you know, I think the, the one thing is that, you know, the Israeli people have always, you know, been motivated just out of like, we want to live, we want to be able to have peace and set, you know, and, and security and not have to worry about these things. Um, and I, and we want to live in a democratic society. We want to live in a free society. Uh, and I think that's why this has resonated so much in the last three months. Uh, and, and the, and the underlying thing here, right? This, this last three months comes after, uh, a government coalition that had ousted Netanyahu that lasted less than a year. Right. And, and, and that, and that was preceded by, four elections in three years that didn't come to any kind of result. So this is actually, um, as you say, this sort of bifurcation of, in society um, between uh, those who support, it's not necessarily left and right is, is the interesting thing. It's those who support Netanyahu and those who are against Netanyahu. Um, and, sounds familiar. Yeah, right. And uh, so, so you have the the previous government had parties from the right Zionist political faction, as well as an Arab party. Uh, for the first time in Israel's governing coalition, there was an Arab party to the left wing. Labor and merits parties, right? So it was really a, a broad coalition. And the one thing that held all those parties together was their opposition to Netanyahu serving as prime minister while under indictment and on trial for corruption. Mm. And this all yeah, so and this all started in two thousand and eighteen. Right in 2018, uh, Netanyahu was was put under investigation, and Avigdor Lieberman, the head of the Israel Bitenu Party, which represents mainly uh, former Soviet Jews who have moved to Israel, uh, that's their right. constituency. Uh, he resigned from the governing coalition because he would not sit with the prime minister uh, uh, under indictment which lost the Bibi's block, Netanyahu's block, the sufficient numbers to hold the coalition together. And since then, there's been a series of elections, a series of short-term governments, um, and a real paralysis in the Israeli political system. Right. Well, it, it, just to um, uh, you know, circle back to... Um, what we were talking about just a minute or two ago and, and kind of connect it with your service as our on the ground reporter here in Israel. Um, and to the extent that you're aware or, you know, not just through your own personal experiences, but reading local press and, and so forth, because, you know, Arab Israelis constitute, I mean, roughly, I think 20% yeah, of 18, Israeli society. And, and so how have they been responding to this? Have they been participating in the demonstrations? Um, you know, largely kind of just staying out of the fray. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, so uh, early on in this these protest cycles in the last 12 weeks, um, there was a real reticence for the Arab community to get involved, both from within uh, and as well as sort of the protest organizers didn't necessarily want uh, this to become a protest about the occupation, right? Right. Poli politically, right? Uh, and so they were, so the Arab community was not, was not really, uh, invited into these protests, so to speak. Um, as the, as the time went on, uh, Arab protest groups got more involved, not necessarily in the protest, the big protests in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, mm. but in a lot of the more localized protests that have been going on in the South and in the North. That said, uh, as the protests have grown bigger, the the sort of uh, anti-occupation block of protesters have gotten bigger because this protest is not at all really unified. It's it's different protest groups sure. coming together to protest, and they all sort of have their own different agendas. 
Um, but uh, as as the protests have gone on, uh, the Arab bloc, uh, the anti-occupation bloc has definitely grown. And as the protests have gone on, calls from Arab leaders to get involved in the protests have grown uh, up to um, Mansour Abbas, who is the head of the Ra'am party, uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood party uh, in Israel, who was uh, that was part of the previous government. Uh, right. And he came out and called on his supporters to come uh, and join the protests. Ayman Oda, the the head of the uh, um, Hadash Tal party, which is another Arab party uh, in the opposition, uh, came out and called for their supporters to join the protests. So as time has gone on, uh, there's been more Arab involvement, um, but but the you know, as, as is always true here, the, the kind of undercurrent in this uh, is that Israel has been going through a wave of increased terrorist attacks um, against Israeli civilians over the past year. And so there's also, you know, during this 12 weeks, been several significant terrorist attacks against Israelis, which always causes a little bit of uh, uh, hesitancy uh, on both sides to kind of re-engage immediately, you know. And so uh, there's always that kind of hiccup as it's going through. Right. And and I think, you know, hearing your kind of characterization of things, which, you know, I, uh, is appreciated to kind of get a sense of, of, you know, how this is unfolding. I think it underlines that despite, uh, again, one of the kind of big outward facing talking points we've heard from the Israeli government for decades is, you know, Arab Israelis are equal citizens and, you know, they get treated better than in any Arab country. There's all the, you know, uh, that's like a stock phrase um, uh, that, you know, there may be some areas that that has, you know, a, a, a hint of truth, but fundamentally Arab Israelis are still um, by wide society, not you know, particular groups may embrace them wholeheartedly, may support their cause of you know Jewish Israelis, but in in a wider social milieu of a broader Israeli society, they're still hold a kind of tenuous position that that is not akin, you know, like an, a Jewish Israeli right. would, would just be like, I want to hit the streets, but like right. an Arab Israeli is going to be like, there's there's no. definitely more of a consideration and more thought into the question. Um, right. Whereas, and so, yeah, you know, in, in this case, they they probably have some of the most at stake, not that other people don't. But I mean, like as a group, they're probably the stakes are highest for them. Yeah, I mean, they're the ones who are going to feel the brunt of um, legislation or, or chain, you know, weakening of the court's protections of them. Right. Uh, they're going to be the first. We'll put it this way. They're going to be the, the first to feel it. Right. Well, there, I mean, there's a minister yeah. in, in, the, in the government who, you know, I, you know, when the, the language of like, you know, so and so people don't exist and therefore don't have to be considered. I mean, that that's that is chilling. That is. Yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting because, um, you know, again, one of Netanyahu's, you know, top qualities, whatever you want to say about him, one of one of his top qualities is this ability to speak diplomatically and to kind of uh, take into account public opinion and how things are supposed to be said when speaking. Um, and it, it's really like within his government, uh, there's no diplomatic adult in the room anymore. Um, people are just, it, it's like these people don't understand that they're actually government ministers. And when they speak, they they are representing the government. So what they say, and it's like they have no idea. They just talk, and it's really dangerous, and it's really really problematic. Uh, we're currently seeing, you know, the the, the Israeli American relationship right now is probably at, at the lowest it's been in any time I can remember, and that's including the Obama administration, you know, where things weren't great. We're really, you know, this this whole move has really um, damaged Israel's standing internationally, 
economically, which is one of the reasons that the the leaders of this pro, these protests have been high tech workers, uh, economy workers, bankers. They see the the economic costs more than the political costs of what's happening right now. Right. And right. so they see everything that they, you know, the startup nation, everything they've worked for for the past 25 years being just wiped away. Um, but, but getting back to this question of the division between Arab society and Jewish society, uh, mm. it's, it's a little bit more interesting because uh, former President uh, Reuven Rivlin talks about the four Israels, the four communities uh, of Israel, which is the religious Jewish, the secular Jewish, the Arab, and, and the other, right? And right. so he talks about these four communities and how uh, if we're ever going to kind of move forward, uh, these four communities have to be able to come into balance um, and, you know, all be getting the benefits of being Israeli, of citizenship, of nationhood, right? right. And that uh, until all of these four communities are in balance, we're never going to be able to get to where we want to as a society. And I think it's a really um, insightful thing. Um, Arab society is involved in this question almost, you know, and I don't want to, to, to kind of dismiss it, but almost tangentially in terms of they're the ones who are going to suffer from the results of it. And they're the ones who are going to lose protections of it. Um, but it wasn't uh, issues with the Palestinian or the Arab Israeli Arab community that were sort of the the spark to this this powder keg at the moment. It was really more divisions between the uh, religious Orthodox Jewish community and the more secular liberal Israeli community in Israel. Right. Um, this is where this kind of point of tension has really exploded. Right. Well, I, I want to, I mean, I just want to, I don't know if pushback is the right term, but I, I maybe I want to put a little different color on your, on your comments in that, at least my, my color, to be fair, not like the, uh, not the, uh, you know, righteous color or anything, but my, is that I, I think Arab Israelis and the Arab community within Israel um, are tangential because they've been made tangential. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of them, you know, in any society, if a group is told they don't exist and, and therefore are, are not worthy of consideration, um, I think they would be very pissed and want to hit the streets. Um, but for the reasons we've talked about, they are um, not doing that because of, you know, they're, they've, they, they've been subordinated, um, over decades and, and are probably Absolutely. leery of, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, they're, they're tangentialized as much, you know, so. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I think, you know, the, the previous government was sort of, um, a really good turning point in Israeli society, having a, a an Arab Muslim party, uh, in the governing coalition sort of started, um, hopefully within the Israeli Arab community, almost, uh, you know, civil rights movement kind of uh, change to, to having more desire of, of, you know, political autonomy within Israel. Right. Uh, one of the problems is for a very long time, the, the leadership of the Israeli Arab political parties refused to sit in the governing coalitions, even if invited, out of opposition to the state of Israel, right? To the to the general, you know, existence of the state. Um, or, or, I mean, I, I think no, maybe I, some of the, I mean, some of them as constituted. I mean, you know, maybe. No, no, I, I, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that as like a, right. a point of contention. Um, but, but the result was these calls to boycott the Israeli elections, right? And so while the the Israeli Arab community is 19 or 20 percent of the population, their political representation in the Knesset is usually closer to 10 percent, right? Why is that? Because there's so many Israeli Arabs that heed these calls to, to, uh, to boycott the Israeli elections when their political and voting power could 
make them much more powerful and much more of a, a player. And so anything that brings up uh, Israeli Arab uh, voting numbers, I'm in favor of. And seeing their party, uh, one of their parties in the, the ruling coalition and what kind of changes that that could make for their community in terms of, you know, funding and infrastructure benefits. And, you know, because any any political system is a pig trough and, you know, you need people there who are representing your community if you want to be able to get as much of the benefits, right? And so I'm hoping that, you know, this has led to a change and I'm heartened to see that through the course of the protests, the involvement of Arab Israelis and, and the anti-occupation bloc has increased. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, not desire or or siding, but just, you know, the facts of the situation are that the laws that set this off and, and the issues that set this off had a lot more to do with friction between the ultra-Orthodox community and the secular Jewish community within Israel than... With the, you know, then between the Arab community and, you know, different segments of the Jewish community. It, this was really, you know, the epicenter of this became um, this, this clash between what is the identity of Israel moving forward? Is it going to be a Jewish and democratic state? Is it going to be a theocratic Jewish state? You know, who is going to have the power and, and because the, um, the the population numbers, the demographic numbers are, are rapidly changing in Israel, uh, the ultra orthodox community grows at a much larger, a much faster rate than the secular community. But they also uh, use social services at a much higher rate. They also send their children to orthodox schools that don't that aren't required to teach a, a standardized curriculum like you would see in other places they don't teach math they don't teach science they don't teach english they're uh, exempted from military service they're also exempted from military service and so you have the community of of people who go into the army and work jobs and pay taxes right and see their cost of living go up and their their you know, home prices going up and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And you mm -hmm. have the community of the ultra-Orthodox that consumes social services, does not serve in the army, does not do national service. And both sides are in this kind of fight for um, what does Israel look like in 20 years. We talked before um, we started recording about this. I mean, this is something I wanted to really um, zoom in on is, and you've already noted, right, that a lot of the backdrop to this is the increase in population numbers and, and certainly in terms of political um, power and sway of ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish Israelis. And I think something that is not as um, well-known, I mean, people who are well-versed and, and study and know a lot more, more about Israel than me, um, are well aware of this. Obviously, people living in Israel are well, are well aware of this. But um, at least, you know, as a consumer of, you know, kind of normie American press, Washington Post, Atlantic, what have you, um, I think it's often lost on the fervor and, you know, zealotry of, of uh, not necessarily all, but I mean, uh, you know, their, their views are quite... Um, I believe zealot. That is a, a originally from Hebrew, from the Torah, right? Yeah, the zealot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the zealot. Yeah, I mean, they, so I guess from Masada, <laughs> right? I mean, these, these, these. You know, some of the things that you know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, generally, the the theology is is still quite wed to the notion of Israel as a religious community to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. I mean, as stated in the Torah, um, that that is absolutely like that, that is. So, I mean, when you talk about identity, it's like one is like, yeah, I want to be a kind of tech bro and party in Tel Aviv and like, you know, make a lot of money. And then you have another group that's like where we need to busily work to prepare the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah. Those absolutely. are very, very Those different very... views of a country. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, are they reconcilable? I mean, you know, as crazy as shit is in the U.S., um, you can imagine some points. I mean, maybe increasingly not. But I mean, but with, with those two views of like literally like, you know, we're working as the Torah, you know, 
um, commands us to prepare for the coming of the Messiah versus like, you know, we just want to like, you know, have a, a liberal democracy and like, you know, live in suburbs and like go to work. Are those reconcilable? It, it used to reconcile. There, there used to be this reconcilable place. Um, but what happened was um, you have the rise of this um, religious Zionist community. Okay. And this is not ultra Orthodox. This is not people wearing, you know, long jackets and, and black hats and wearing long beards. This is not the community I'm talking about. Right. Um, this is the community of, like you mentioned before, uh, Betzalel uh, Smotrich, um, the, the community of um, Ben Gvir, who's the head of the um, Jewish Power Party and the uh, Interior Security minister in the current government. Right. Um, this is the community before of, of Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister. Um, I don't want to paint them all with this, with necessarily the same brush because that would do an injustice. But um, the rise of the, the West bank nationalist religious community Um and these are the people who, yeah. So this would be the, in the occupied territories, the settler community. Right. This is the settler community in, this is, and again, I don't want to paint everyone, you know, with the same brush, but this is the kind of political, theological arm of the uh, people who believe that it's their religious job to, take this land and settle it for God, um, you know? And so, um, it and, used and to be- I mean, that's a, that's still a bit euphemistic for my taste. I mean, that, that means yeah. like clear out the Palestinians. Um, to By, varying, de- to varying degrees. I don't, again, strains, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to paint it all because there are, there's a I just wide wanna, array of views when it, no, even sure. within the religious uh, Zionist community. On yeah, this. I, I think that's absolutely true and, fa- and and important to point out. I what I why I'm you know zeroing in on that is again I know there's been activists within Israel who have ho- held those views for a long time, yeah. decade, going back yeah, to the founding. But, but, but what happened is is this mainstreaming of it, right? That there, what I'm trying to get at is there are people within positions of power of Israel um, who have a vision of, you know, and I mean, in some ways it's the reverse, like, you know, some Arab governments and, and, and chillingly used to say, we need to shove Israel is, you know, Jews into the, into the, into the sea. And it's almost like an inverse of that. We need to shove Palestinians into Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. I mean, yeah. so th- there are people in the government and in, sure. in, in positions of power who like, that's their view. For sure. Not, it not, didn't used to be. It's, right. it's so no, much. It no, did. I know. I I followed Israeli yeah. politics for decades. I mean, this is this yeah, is yeah. This wacky is a, this stuff, is, right? And so this is this political empowerment of this settler uh, religious Zionist community, the Bengvirs, the Smotriches, the the far right of Netanyahu's own Likud party, right? Right. Um, this is the enabling and the, and the empowering of those voices. Previous to that, and and to a certain extent, the the rise of that community is sort of directly related to the failure of Oslo, and, and you know, and and the failure of that whole process, and and the outbreak of the Second Intifada. Um, that's one of the the major things that empowered them and sort of gave them legitimacy. See, we told you this was going to happen. See, you know, we were right all along. You can't live with them, right? This kind of stuff. Um, well, it, I just but, plug my own. It but, does remind me of yeah. Korea after the kind of breakdown and failure of the sunshine policy, you know, um, different context, but very similar, right? There was this period of trying to work with North Korea and that kind of didn't pan out. And then that was used. And there's a, always going to be a backlash to that. Right. Yeah. Um, And so um, it used to be that you had, you know, kind of the secular community in Israel and the ultra Orthodox community in Israel. Right. These these guys with long beards and and black hats who spend their whole day praying Um, as opposed to like the religious Zionists, you know, in the settlements or in Israel. But like, you know, these are two 
very different communities. Um, and when the, when the when the conflict was just between you know the secular and the ultra ultra orthodox, the ultra orthodox sort of took this stance where like you can do what you want, just leave it outside of our communities. Let us have our communities the way we want, and you do whatever you want outside of that. You know what I mean? Well, there was a little bit more of old fashioned kind of politicking, which is, you know, happens everywhere. Sure. It's also, and give us some money and we're not going to be in the military. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Really. You let leave us, us alone. Give us some money. And yeah. we want, we're not going to And, and we won't bother you. Yeah. And you right. can do whatever you want with the rest of it. And that worked for a long time. Right. That worked for a long time. But a growing population of ultra Orthodox combined with the rise in the religious Zionist and Benjamin Netanyahu's political, criminal, whatever problems have led to much of the center-right moving against Netanyahu. You have the, the formation of several political parties that came from people who were no longer willing to, to sit in the Likud with Bibi Netanyahu under indictment and, and on trial, and they split off and formed their own parties that then joined in the opposition to Netanyahu, right? right. So the, the center right has split off, which means that if Bibi wants to stay in power, he needs to go further and further right to find the, the votes to, to make a coalition. And this is what empowers, and everyone knows it, right? And so this is what empowers these religious Zionist leaders to make so many demands and get so much out of Netanyahu in exchange for them joining the coalition because he doesn't have anywhere else left to go. Uh, he's kind of burned over his long and illustrious career. One of the things he consistently did was burn every bridge he went past. And so he's now standing alone on this island with a coalition that if he wants to stay in power and possibly out of jail, he needs to keep this coalition together. And so and these people are just total. And they're just ringing him for all he's worth. And and they're kind of like, you know, people that even, you know, amongst the right faction in Israel 20 or 30 years ago would have been like nutter outcasts. In the last election, the story that Netanyahu was working to try and pull these two parties together to run together so that they had enough votes to get into the Knesset, the story was an outrage. People were like, how can you legitimize these racists and these, you know, like they can't sit in the Knesset. And just one cycle later, he's he's made them, you know, a major partner in his coalition. So it's 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 been a very quick change right. from the political extreme to the mainstream very quickly. Well, you know, take note America and I I just actually had a a literal shudder cuz you were saying this and I thought about, you know, um he has a reasonable shot to be president in 2024 like the Donald Trump 2024 cabinet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not left? even kidding, Who's man. Left? Hey, America there's no one on the left of him who's who's willing to join anymore. No, I mean, right? I'm not even Trump sure. Would, it would be Trump MGT. would represent the left wing of his own party. Right. It would be like MGT and God knows who else. I, I don't even, oh. I mean, really, it's, I sh, I'm not even like, I'm not exaggerating when I said I physically shuddered. Um, and yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not like rah-rah Democrats, but I'm like, Jesus. And that's one of the things that kind of made me so proud of this whole like kind of last 12 weeks and especially the last few days is how hard and fast and die hard Israelis were about coming out to oppose this. And, you know, uh, it, it kind of gives you hope when you see I'm this a- kind of ground movement. I'm I'm as harsh as they come. I, I try to be a fair but harsh general critique of a uh, critic of Israel, um, the Israeli government. Um, but I must say that if you want to win my heart, there's nothing, there's no, there's no more direct way to my heart um, than a mass strike. And Americans should take note of that. I'm not even bullshitting. Like Americans yeah, yeah. don't realize. Like, and the French got it, the Israelis got it. Like, y- you know, you shut the fucking thing down by just don't go to work. And you want to get elite's attention. 
um, and you want them to listen to the quote unquote people, stop going to fucking work. That's it. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. The mass strike. We are, we are a resource. Workers yeah. are a resource, you know. And They're the basis of everything. And, you know, you can call it Marxist. You can call it whatever you want. But you, look, Netanyahu wanted to push that bill through. He was probably getting, like you said, from from the knuckleheads he has in his government. And, mm-hmm. and you know, um, and, you know, people just stop going to work. And like I said, um, it, you know, I got a soft spot. That's a, that's a quick way to my heart. And I was really happy. And, and I was happy to see that it was that it, at least in the short run, we'll see how this all pans out. And we might have to record another podcast yeah. in a week um but yeah. uh you know it 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 worked i mean he he blinked in general you know? at the moment he blinked but we'll see what that blink actually leads to because he's he's a master at kicking the can down the road okay so as we discussed in the intro that's a wrap for part one i uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation and please tune in sometime next week to pick things up um where we left off here um for a further more extensive dive into a bit of the history and ongoing issues um, within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict more broadly. 